I just love that song, Holy, Holy, Holy. You know, that comes from Isaiah when he looks on the Lord's throne room and uh, the heavenly hosts are singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. Do you know why there's three holies? What that means? Yeah, it's the Trinity, yeah. So there's Christ in the Old Testament right there. I can, I can leave now. Just kidding. All right. Well, apparently my sermon wasn't too controversial last time, and I have been invited back. <laughs> I am continuing my series, Christ in the Old Testament. And last time I spoke on Christ in the Garden of Eden, and allow me to recap. I talked about the adventure I went through when challenged years ago by my friend Kyle in Virginia. He believes that Christ is found in every verse in the Bible. Kyle opened my eyes to see Christ in many places where one might not suspect. Since then, I've been paying attention, reading the Old Testament, and looking for Christ. Furthermore, uh, Jesus himself on the Emmaus Road after his resurrection explains to some disciples who did not even recognize him, at least not until their eyes were open, that the Old Testament is all about him. Let's review Luke 24, 27. Luke 24, 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Do you see the comparison that Luke makes when he retells the events on the Emmaus Road? They didn't recognize Jesus on the Emmaus Road just like they didn't recognize Jesus in the Old Testament. However, in both places, the Emmaus Road and the Old Testament, Jesus had been there unrecognized all along. Last time I explained that Jesus was present with Adam and Eve in the garden. In Genesis 3.8, we read, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I explained that when you see God in human form, such as walking, that is Jesus. Jesus is also seen in the curse on the talking snake. Remember this picture? Looking at Genesis 3, 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Adam and Eve distrusted God and were no longer eligible to live in paradise. However, God prophesied that a savior the seed of the woman would fix the problem. The seed of the woman is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Old Testament saints were saved the same way New Testament saints are saved. They were saved by grace through faith in the coming Messiah. The only difference is they were looking ahead and we are looking back to the cross. We are saved by grace through faith in the Messiah who already came. 
Finally, Jesus is depicted in the animal skins that God made for Adam and Eve. Look at Genesis 3:21. Also, for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skins and clothed them. This is another element of salvation. There must be an atoning death. By making tunics of skin, it is implied that an animal had to die. And that death represents the death of Jesus on the cross. Remember what God said would happen when they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Yeah, they would die. And they did die spiritually. Now all humanity needs a substitutionary death to pay for our sins. Putting this all together, we have the Old Testament version of the gospel. Old Testament saints needed to trust in the coming Messiah, the seed of the woman, who would die in their place, being the perfect substitute for their sins. That Messiah would be victorious, ultimately defeating all his foes, including sin, death, and that crafty talking snake. Are you a sinner, not yet saved from your sins? Do you want the substitutionary death of Jesus to be applied to you? A little later, I will explain how you too can go to paradise when you die. Well, Adam and Eve were fruitful and multiplied. By Genesis chapter 6, there were millions of people in the world. Sadly, though, sin multiplied as well, and there was a huge problem. Today's sermon is entitled, Christ and Noah's Ark. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 6, starting with verse 5. Verse 5 reads, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. You see, this is why we can't have nice things. Look at verse 7. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That first part is very sad. God put so much thought and care into creating a nice world to live in, but people ruined it. However, there was a silver lining to the primordial cloud. Let's see verse 8 again. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. A key word in the Noah narrative is grace. Yeah, write that. It's on your notes. While the Hebrew word behind this word doesn't always mean grace, I agree with the New King James Version here. The New Bible Dictionary from InterVarsity Press says that this Hebrew word, chen, here translated as grace, speaks of undeserved favor. The New Bible Dictionary goes on to say, no one can show chen to God, for no one can do him a favor. So yes, I am saying that Noah didn't get saved from the flood because he was better than everybody else. Noah got saved from the flood because of God's grace. 
some of you are already thinking of the New Testament implications here. I'm here today to tell you that if you were a sinner like Adam and Eve and like all the people in the pre-flood world, you too can find grace in the eyes of God just like Noah. Also, Noah had a working faith. Hebrews 11, 6 through 7 says, But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of these things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah had faith in God and in his promises and he found grace. This is grace through faith. Building the ark didn't please God. Noah was already justified through faith, by grace through faith. Building the ark was the evidence that Noah's faith was genuine. Oh, and his neighbors, they must have laughed and laughed. You know, they were scoffers. And I wonder, because none of, none of the neighbors went with him, I wonder if maybe some of them had, you know, built little speedboats in the back of their garage, just in case, you know. But that, but that wouldn't work. There was only one way to get saved from the flood, and that was to be in that ark. It was designed perfectly by God so that it would survive the flood. No other boat was going to survive. Anyway, baptism is one of the ways that we show evidence of our faith. Hmm. And in both cases, it has to do with going through water. Very interesting. If you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus then you haven't yet partaken of God's grace. And we shall talk about that a little bit more uh, later on in the sermon. Do you know that there are flood myths from all around the world? Would you like me to read some to you? Yeah. Okay. But first I'll read the real story and then we'll compare. Okay, I'm going to read from Genesis chapters 6 and 7, and then afterward I will read a Native American flood story. Okay, here goes. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, starting with verse 13. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. Its width, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and you shall finish it to a cubit from above. And set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh, which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. 
And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing on the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven of each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven each of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. So Noah, with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth, two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass that after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were open. And the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after its kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all flesh that was in the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Well, let me pause there for a second. The Lord shut him in. If we are looking for Christ in the Old Testament, this could be him. If you remember, I said that anywhere you see God in human form, that is Jesus. Okay, on the other hand, it could be God's spirit who shut the door. So let's just say this is a maybe, but yet still significant. Reading on. Now the flood was on the earth 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. I'll pause here again. Because some people say, oh, it was just a local flood. Well, that can't be true because water seeks its level. If the waters were above the high mountains, that means the entire planet was covered with water. Okay, back to our story. 
Verse 20. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Anyway, when the waters recede, Noah and his family land on Mount Ararat. They send out the raven and dove. When it is clear that they, they can depart from the ark, then they have a sacrifice to God. God promises never to destroy the earth that way again, and the sign is the rainbow. This is a picture of the Ark replica in Kentucky. They lit it up with rainbow colors. Now, I've never been there, but that's okay. I'm, I'm not jealous of those of you who have. As you can see in the picture, the rainbow is an amazing biblical symbol of God's promises. Amen? When I was in school, they used to say that Native Americans came here over a land bridge. Okay? So, here we have Russia, and people could just walk right across to Alaska, and then they would go down here, and they would go grab that oceanfront property in San Diego uh, before they got priced out of the market. In this picture here, you see mastodons and rhinoceroses. Okay? So here's the little cavemen, and they're chasing the big game. So there's a buffalo, there's a mastodon, there's a rhinoceros. They're all you know, very much more hairy versions of the ones we have today. Um, and they say, you know, that's, that's how they came over into America. They were chasing big game. But uh, the point is here that the, the secularists can't deny that mastodons and rhinoceroses once lived in the Americas. My question is, why do they find flowers from subtropical plants inside the stomachs of the mastodons? meaning when they defrost them out of these uh, icebergs. Yeah, those kind of flowers can't grow in the Arctic tundra. So the real truth is the ice came later, after the human settlements. Likewise, any proposed ice age must have come after the flood. Elephants, no matter how hairy, can't survive in the tundra. They need to eat enormous amounts of food, and that requires constant access to plants. No time to dig down through the snow. Uh, not to mention an, an, an elephant trunk loses too much heat to be able to survive in that cold. The Bible speaks of a water canopy around the earth. Okay? So before the flood, earth processes were different. The Bible says that a mist used to come up and water the earth. So imagine this. The earth was like a great big terrarium. This man's name is David Latimer. He sealed up this terrarium in 1975. It's the world's longest sealed terrarium. And as you can see, it's still doing well. 
A closed terrarium is a complete ecosystem. So it's, it's kind of like the earth under that water canopy. Water condenses on the glass and then it drips down into the leaves of the plants. So you can put moss and plants and things in there. Uh, there's a couple little snails living in there. And then seal it up and now you don't have to water it for the next 75 years. <laughs> but during the flood, the Bible says that the fountains of the deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were open. I take this to mean that the water canopy, which helped maintain a wet, warm climate, burst. In addition to water just gushing everywhere, suddenly the Arctic and Antarctic temperatures dropped drastically. It is estimated that in order to freeze flowers in a hot mastodon's stomach before they decay, would have required an immediate temperature drop to minus 150 degrees. And why do they find frozen mastodons and rhinoceroses on the top of the hills in the Arctic? Is it as if they were trying to escape an advancing flood? So did Native Americans come over via the land bridge and ice corridor? No, no they didn't. Native Americans were settled here by God after the Tower of Babel incident. The Bible says in Genesis 11.9, Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Okay, I'm finally getting to my promised Native American flood story. This folklore is from the Ojibwe people. And the Ojibwe people are, are sometimes called the Chippewa Indians. Most Ojibwe come from states and provinces such as Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ontario, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan. This story is about a combination God Noah figure named Nanaboso. And Nanaboso had just made the sun shine hot on a lake where a demonic serpent was hiding at the bottom. And Nanabozo is disguising himself as a tree stump. So this is where we'll pick up on the story. Reading from the story of Nanabozo. Not long after, the lake became more troubled. Its water boiled from its very depths, and the hot waves dashed widely against the rocks on its banks. Soon, the great serpent came slowly to the surface of the water and moved toward the shore. His blood-red crest show, glowed. The reflection from his scales was blinding, as blinding as the glitter of a sleet-covered forest beneath the winter sun. He was followed by all the evil spirits. So great was their number that they soon covered the shores of the lake. When they saw the broken stump of the withered tree, they suspected it might be one of the disguises of Nanabozo. They knew his cunning. One of the serpents approached the stump, wound his tail around it, and tried to drag it down into the lake. 
Nanabozo could hardly keep from crying aloud, for the tail of the monster pricked his sides. But he stood firm and was silent. The evil spirits moved on. The great serpent glided into the forest and wound his many coils around the trees. His companions also found shade, all but one. One remained near the shore to listen for the footsteps of Nanaboso. From the stump, Nanaboso watched until all the serpents were asleep and the guard was intently looking the other direction. Then he silently drew an arrow from his quiver, placed it in his bow, aimed it at the heart of the great serpent. It reached its mark with a howl that shook the mountains and startled the wild beasts in their caves. The monster awoke, followed by its terrified companions, which also were howling with rage and terror. The great serpent plunged into the water. At the bottom of the lake, there still lay the body of Nenebozo's cousin. In their fury, the serpents tore it into a thousand pieces. His shredded lungs rose to the surface and covered the lake with whiteness. The great serpent soon knew that he would die from his wound, but he and his companions were determined to destroy Nenebozo. They caused the water of the lake to swell upward and to pound against the shore with the sound of many thunders. Madly, the flood rolled over the land, over the tracks of Nenebozo, carrying with it rocks and trees. High on the crest of the highest wave floated the great wounded serpent. His eyes glared around him, and his hot breath mingled with the hot breath of his many companions. Nenebozo, fleeing before the angry waters, thought of his Indian children. He ran through the villages, shouting, Run to the mountaintops! The great serpent is angry and is flooding the earth. Run! Run! The people caught up their children and found safety in the mountains. Nenebozo continued his flight among the base of the western hills and then up a high mountain beyond Lake Superior, far to the north. There he found many men and animals that escaped from the flood that were already covering the valleys and plains and even the highest hills. Still, the water continued to rise. Soon, all the mountains were under the flood except the high one on which stood Nenebozo. There he gathered together timber and made a raft. Upon it, the men and women and animals with him placed themselves. Almost immediately, the mountaintop disappeared from their view, and they floated along the surface of the waters. For many days, they floated. At long last, the flood began to subside. Soon the people on the raft saw the trees on the tops of the mountains. Then they saw the mountains and hills, then the plains and the valleys. When the water disappeared from the land, the people who survived learned that the great serpent was dead and that his companions had returned to the bottom of the lake of spirits. There they remain to this day. For the fear of Nanabozo, they have never uh, dared to come forth again. Isn't that amazing? Uh, they say that settlers first came to Hawaii in rafts from other Polynesian islands. Now, here's a diagram of this theory. All right, so, the, uh, so people started up here in China, and they 
had boats and they settled these islands and other people were settling these islands and they slowly worked their way on boats all the way here and then from there they split and went to different islands and some people even went up to Hawaii. Okay? That's, that's, uh, that's what they teach in the classrooms. However, Polynesian traditions from many islands, including New Zealand, say that they came from Hawaii. Uh, the word Hawaii in many Polynesian languages means home. However, in the Hawaiian language, Hawaii just means land. This would seem that migration started in Hawaii. But obviously that can't be true. Or can it? Yes, once again, Genesis 11.9. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because the Lord confused the languages of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. There is a story from Hawaii of a Noah figure named Nu'u. In the story, Nu'u builds a large vessel and a house on top of it, a large seafaring vessel. It's called Wa'a Halau Ali'i Okamoku. Yeah, say that one ten times fast. All right, in this water vessel with a house on it, he is saved from a flood. And after its substance, Cain, Ku, and Lono enter the house and send him outside where he finds himself on the summit of Mauna Kea on the big island of Hawaii, at a place where there is a cave named after his wife, Lily Noe. He worships the moon with offerings of awa, pig, and coconuts, thinking this is the God who has saved him. The creator God, Cain, descends. Some say he descends on a rainbow and explains his mistake and accepts his offerings. Sadly, I can't read all these stories. There are dozens of worldwide flood stories in many cultures. But preparing for the sermon, I read a lot of them. And I found some common themes in these flood myths. The thing is, flood folklore in many nations is not simply limited to the flood. They very often connect creation stories together with flood stories, just like we see in Genesis. Uh, some themes I found in the flood folklore of nations include speaking things into existence. Sometimes people are formed out of clay, even from the rib of another person. There's often naming of creation. There's often some kind of fall from grace. I see the story of two brothers battling. Oftentimes there's a snake or snakes Sometimes the snake is connected with a tree of life. Some of these other stories have the firmament in the sky, like in the Bible. Um, and when the narratives get to the flood part in these stories, often there is a rainbow and often there is sacrifices on a mountain. Sometimes they even send out a dove or a raven. And kid you not, sometimes the story ends with a great tower not unlike the Tower of Babel reaching up into the heavens. Friends, this cannot be a coincidence. So how do we explain this? 
here are a couple possible ways to explain what I've observed. Possibility one, people instinctively have a memory of these events. And possibility two, cultures pass these common stories down from generation to generation, although they change slightly over time. With regard to the first possibility, there's a lot that scientists don't understand about instinct. How does a spider know how to make the same kind of web that all spiders in that same species make? How does a duck instantly know how to walk and swim after hatching? What mechanism causes the duck to imprint on the mother? Or maybe you, if the mother's not around. There are butterflies in Canada that migrate to Mexico in the fall. They stay there for the winter. However, it takes three generations for the butterflies to get back to Canada. How did they know how to do that? So if we do not understand animal instinct, then there could also be human instincts that we do not understand. Perhaps God gave us an instinctive memory of the events that occurred between Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 11. However, a better way to explain this phenomena is that cultures pass down these stories from generation to generation. The only difference is only the stories passed down to the Hebrews were divinely inspired and perfectly accurate. But you might interject, but Moses wrote Genesis. And I'm not denying that, but this just pushes back the question. The question would be, what method did God use to give Moses the Genesis stories? First, I must say that every Bible, or every verse in the Bible has at least two authors. God is one author, and the divinely inspired human is the other author. And we need to keep this in balance. If we stress God's part too much, then we marginalize the distinctiveness of the human author. Worse still, if we stress the role of the human author, we might find that we are marginalizing God. And to be sure, we do not want to do that. You see, sometimes God directly dictates information to a prophet. Many times, however, the biblical writer is simply just pouring out their feelings. In the Psalms, for example, the Holy Spirit guides the author's words and assures God's message is conveyed. At the same time, the human author's personality also comes through. It's an amazing thing. Sometimes the human author compiles information, and Luke is a good example of this. He seems to have interviewed eyewitnesses of the events in Jesus' life. The Holy Spirit guided this process to make sure God's message was conveyed. Genesis is a bit more mysterious, or is it? Maybe the Native Americans didn't instinctively know about the flood. Maybe Noah and his family passed the stories down through their descendants. And if some of those stories included corrupted yet vaguely familiar versions of the Garden of Eden, Cain and Abel, and then maybe those stories go back before the flood and were likewise passed along by Noah and his family. Think about it too. What Bible did Abraham read? Well, if these stories were passed down orally, then Abraham knew the Bible. 
The Bible that existed for Abraham was the stories of creation, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and the worldwide flood, and the Tower of Babel. In a moment, I'm going to close my laptop and, and speak candidly with you about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I'll get to the, the real reason why I included Noah's Ark in a sermon about Christ in the Old Testament. First, just a little bit more background information. Please look with me at 2 Peter chapter 3. All right, reading from 2 Peter chapter 3, starting with verse 3. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The context of this verse surrounds false teachers that Peter needed to rebuke. Uh, look, however, how these words likewise apply to scoffers of today. Do all things go on the same way as they always have? No. No, they don't. For thousands of years, Native Americans, Hawaiians, and cultures all around the world remembered that there was a worldwide flood. But yet today, everybody scuffs. Go to the Grand Canyon. See the many layers of rock strata. An unbiased opinion would say that the, the layers must have been laid down quickly and the canyon must have been washed out when the ground was still soft. However, evolutionist signs predominate, telling you about the millions of years. Allow me to read 2 Peter 3, starting with verse 5 again. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded by water. But the heavens and earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of godly men. Now let me tell you about my Savior. I already talked about one way to find Christ in the Old Testament, and that is to look for anywhere you see God in human form. You can be assured that's Jesus. But many times you find Christ in the Old Testament by what uh, theologians call typology. Uh, a better way of saying it is a picture. So a lot of times people in the Old Testament are pictures of Christ. So an example of this might be Joseph. And you really want to watch for physical salvation in the Old Testament because physical salvation in the Old Testament often is picturing spiritual salvation in the New Testament. So Joseph saved his brothers and, and his parents. Joseph saved his whole family from the famine that was in the, the land where they lived and they came and lived with them in Egypt. So that's a picture of the salvation we have from Jesus. 
Um, another picture of, of Christ in the Old Testament would be Boaz. Boaz in the book of Ruth. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. And Jesus is also called a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer is someone who would um, restore a family line. So Boaz saved Ruth from her predicament. Boaz saved the family line. And that's a picture of the salvation of Christ in the New Testament. But these, these pictures of Christ in the Old Testament are not, all, not always people. Sometimes they're objects. So when Moses raised up the, the serpent in the wilderness, the Bible says that that's a, a picture of, of Jesus being raised up on the cross. Uh, Jacob's ladder is a picture of salvation because Jacob's ladder is a, is a ladder going from heaven or going from earth to heaven. Actually, the angels were going both ways. Uh, it's, it's a way of bridging us back to paradise. And that's what Jesus is. He's a bridge back to paradise. Same thing with Noah's Ark. The Ark is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was only one way to get saved from the flood. Only one way. You had to go on the boat. You had to go on Noah's Ark. And I'm sure he would have let the neighbors in, but they chose not to. So just those eight people and all those animals were saved and everybody else perished. Same thing with Jesus. Just those who are in Christ are going to be saved. Those who aren't in Christ, you're going to hell for eternity. Now, there may be people here today who haven't uh, trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. So I'd like to give you an opportunity at this time uh, to believe in Jesus. I do want to point out, though, and I'm going to pray, I want to point out that praying a prayer doesn't save you, but oftentimes people are saved at the same moment as praying a prayer. This is why I'm going to, uh, to lead in this, in this prayer. Um, if you wouldn't mind standing up, but please, um, everybody, bow your head, close your eyes, and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray what we call the sinner's prayer. Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm like Adam and Eve who distrusted you and, and ate the forbidden fruit. I know I'm like those people in Noah's day and age who were wicked and deserving of death. But Lord, thank you that you've given a way to be able to make it back to paradise. You gave your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on that cross, who could be the substitutionary atonement. And I'm placing my faith in him today. I am trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation right at this moment. And I'm also committing that I want to live a life obedient to you from here on out. If you keep, keep your heads down, eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer with me today for the very first time, uh, if you could just raise your hand and nobody's looking. I got, amen, praise the Lord. 
And if you'd, uh, okay, go ahead and uh, open your eyes. Um, if anyone would like to come forth, I have people who are willing to pray with you. Um, if you, if you uh, just prayed that prayer, I would definitely encourage you to, to come forward and um, meet with someone who would be willing to, to pray with you. What we want to see is if you trusted in the Lord Jesus as your Savior, that you get plugged in to the church that um, we can, we can uh, work with you to what's called discipling you, um, to get you to a, a point where you're um, growing and, uh, and, and following your commitment to the Lord Jesus. So um, just come on up if you, if, you, if you prayed that prayer today. Or maybe there's some people who have been backslidden. Maybe uh, you haven't been living the way that you should and you, you just like someone to pray with you. Um, and if you don't want to come up here too, I've, I've been told that uh, um, there's someone in the back who's willing to, to go back with you in the, in the, the cry room as well and, and pray with you um, if you want a, a private spot. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you just another minute and then, uh, then we'll close up. But, um, people talk too about the that one, that one door in the ark, which is also a picture of the Lord Jesus. I understand if you go to the, the ark in the, the ark recreation in Kentucky and you look up and you see the one door, there's a, there's a cross painted on it to just to show that connection. Um, although I like to look at it more as though the, the whole ark is a picture of Jesus. There's only one way to get saved in the flood. And there's only one way to be saved from your sins, and that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, well, if there's nobody else, then I'm going to go ahead and close up in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you're able to tell us about things that happened so long ago. Thank you that you even put your story of salvation from the flood in cultures all around the world so that um, perhaps when they hear the gospel for the first time, they'll recognize it. And uh, thank you for this group of people here today and just ask that um, if anyone has prayed that they would, and anyone did get saved today, that they would go on serving you and get plugged into the church. And if there's anyone who's turn from their backslidden ways that, uh, that, they, that would be a firm commitment on their side as well. And uh, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.